Today marks our 50th episode of Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast, and we thank you all for your continued support. To kick off the next 50 episodes, this is one not to miss. We are joined by Ben Rhodes, Chair of National Security Action, author and former Deputy National Security Advisor, Ben Rhodes. He sits down with the Millennium Alliance co-founder and managing partner, Alex Sobel, to talk about his career journey, his eight years with the Obama administration, and his newest book, The World As It Is. As keynote speaker for our transformational CISO assembly, we were honored to sit down with Ben to talk all things information security. This is a first for me. Millennium Alliance has been around for six years. And as one of the two company founders, I've never interviewed one of our esteemed and distinguished keynote presenters. But I wanted to make it a point to do this as tonight's keynote speaker at the Transformational CISO Assembly National Event is someone uh, whose career I've been following for a very long time, probably five, six, or seven years or so, Ben Rhodes, who was in the Obama administration, the Deputy National Security Advisor, and who's had a lot of accomplishments in his life pre, during, and post the Obama administration, has written a great new book that's been out for a little bit. It's a New York Times bestseller and is, uh, for me and for I know a lot of people I know, we're, we're big fans. So we're so happy that you're here. Really excited, obviously, to be doing this interview. So thanks so much for coming, thanks. Ben. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah we, uh, we really appreciate it. So Ben, I know from you know seeing you on different news sites and television stations and reading a lot of what you've wrote, a lot about what your opinions are in terms of the world of cyber and you know the kind of the political landscape and kind of your general thoughts on a number of hot topics. But what I was interested to talk about, in addition to some of the regular stuff that you've probably been asked um, for quite some time now, is more so about yourself and how you got into this world. And I know a little bit about your background growing up in New York City, and then I know you went, out, you went to college in Texas. But w- what I was curious about, more so than kind of just a general policy interview, was to talk about how this became your life's work. You know, as a as a as a young boy growing up in Manhattan, were you always interested in current events and politics? I was curious how you got to, you know, not just one day you were a speechwriter for the Obama campaign. What what kind of led to that? Yeah, well, you know, growing up in New York, I was in a very politically aware family. You know, my brother ended up being president of CBS News, so I we get asked, you know, what what happened in your house, and, and I think a part of it is just like we were encouraged to debate politics, to be involved in politics. I thought I wanted to be a writer, though. Um, that was kind of my intent when I went off to college. And so I always had that interest in politics and political campaigns and, and worked on a number of campaigns, but was following a trajectory where I thought I'd go into writing, publishing, journalism. And, and all of that really did shift in, in one moment. It was a 9-11. I was working a city council campaign, and New York's election day was on September 11th, the primary election. And I was in North Brooklyn, had kind of an unobstructed view of the Trade Center. So I saw the attack unfold. I saw the second plane hit and then the first tower fall. And to me, I just remember walking home and having an incredible sense that whatever I was going to do in my life, I was 24 at the time, was going to be tied to the response to this event that I'd just seen. You know, that that I wanted my life to connect to these bigger events that were going to transpire around me. And, and that kind of propelled me down to D.C. to interview for jobs. Again, I thought in, in journalism. You know, that's what a writer would do. But I was encouraged, well, you know, think about being a speechwriter, which is not a line of work that people (laughs) tend to think of going into. But it ended up being a great fit for me because it allowed me to be politically engaged while also being a writer, which was my principal kind of skill set. And, you know, five, six years in D.C., working in foreign policy and speechwriting, 
ended up positioning me to join the Obama campaign as a, as a speechwriter. And everything that happened since is kind of tied to those initial decisions. I, I had no plan to work in the White House. I had curiosity about the world. I had a, a passion for writing, an interest in politics. And I just kind of followed those interests. And I always like to say that if I had had a plan to be Deputy National Security Advisor, I never would have become Deputy National Security Advisor. <laughs> it was just doing what I felt motivated to do in, in circumstances that, that opened doors for me. So how, how does that how does that happen in terms of, so you're, you're in D.C. and you're getting into speech writing? Because you, you had worked very early on before this for Rudy Giuliani's mayoral, yeah. uh, mayoral campaign. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I'm, I think probably slotted as a pretty partisan Democrat, but I was kind of a Republican leaning as a kid and passionate about just politics and campaigns. And so when I was 19, uh, I worked on the Giuliani re-election campaign, <laughs> uh, which seems like, you know, impossible right now. Yeah. And uh, but then, you know, in D.C., I was in a very nonpartisan perspective. I was a speechwriter for a guy who ran a think tank. He was the co-chair of the 9-11 committee. Yes. Which you, which you contributed to as well, right? I did. And a lot of, you know, cyber was beginning to emerge and government organization. You know, I was kind of his guy. I was his staffer who worked to support his interests and in, in the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission especially. And then I, he also co-chaired a commission with James Baker on the Iraq War. So I, I was kind of lucky to be a 20-something in D.C., a Democrat in the Bush years, working on these big projects. And I was increasingly frustrated that you could make all the recommendations you know, possible from that perspective. But if, if politics didn't change, if the people in charge didn't change, then the outcomes weren't going to change. And so that, that's what compelled me to take that step from kind of a nonpartisan perch to wanting to get in a, a 2008 campaign. And for me, it was the Obama campaign. Was some of the work that you were doing, was it seen by officials in the Obama administration or was it you got interested in this candidate and you, and you kind of made your name known or how, how, did that, how does that all that come about? It's interesting. You know, politics is, is even more so than other industries, very relationship driven. You're in D.C., you kind of meet your generational cohort. And what happened for me is the Iraq study group, the thing, the commission I worked on, I wrote their report. It recommended a kind of phased withdrawal and end to the Iraq war. And it came out in late 2006 at right about the same time that Obama was preparing to run for president as a kind of anti-Iraq war candidate. So some of the people around him knew me uh, and knew this work I'd done. And the first thing I did for Obama is help him write legislation that implemented the recommendations of the commission I worked on to wind down the Iraq war. Sure. And then they're like, well, wait a second, this guy's young and he can write and, and we need young people who can write on this campaign. And they had a speech writing opening for someone who could write foreign policy speeches. And so it really was a convergence of factors and, and some personal relationships. Well, that's interesting. Did you know much about then Senator Obama at the time? Did you know about what he had done in his life or did was it more so that you lined up a lot to kind of his policy positions? I didn't know him, obviously, personally. I had kind of followed his rise in 2004 that culminated in that speech at the Democratic Convention. And I was one of those people who was really struck by that speech and by his meteoric rise, in part because I was very frustrated by politicians around that time. You know, it felt to me like this huge event that I witnessed, 9-11, had happened. And then it seemed like we were getting a lot of stuff wrong, principally the Iraq War. And here's the one guy who's different. And he's not just different because he's African-American. He's different. He's speaking differently. He'd opposed the war. He seemed to represent a generational change. All of that appealed to me. And so it wasn't just I wanted to work for any campaign. I very much wanted to work for his campaign. With the assumption that he was going to win the election, was it then your motivation to want to work in the administration? 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I never really thought about a job, but on the campaign, I was kind of a utility player because I was on the speech writing team and I wrote all the foreign policy speeches. And But I also was the guy who helped Obama prepare for debates on foreign policy and interviews on foreign policy. And I did some media. And, and so, you know, campaigns, everybody does a little bit of everything. Sure. They're very flat organizations, which is a great way to pick up new skills. Um, so for me, this is all, you know, political communication beyond speech writing was new. And when we came into the administration, at the very beginning, I was a speechwriter. But within eight months, a role opened up that essentially combined all of the things that I had done for him, which were not just speechwriting, but his communications and his preparation and how's the government communicating on foreign policy and also how are we making sure some of his priorities are not languishing, you know. And there was this deputy national security advisor role. So in, in, a, in a strange way, the role I performed on the campaign kind of evolved into the role I performed in government, which didn't fit that neatly on an organizational chart, but ended up being eight years of my life. And, and you were with the administration for all eight years, right? Yes, uh, which is very rare. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not that's not the norm. Uh, no, right? people usually cycle. I used to, when I was a kid, I used to look at people who left White House jobs and think, how could anyone ever leave these jobs? Yeah, that's what I would think. They burn you out. I mean, they're intense. I mean, I think I could do the eight years because I was young. You know, I was... Um, 31 years old at the beginning of the Obama administration. And I didn't have kids yet. And um, I had a lot of stamina. And so most people, what they do is they do a few years at the White House and leave, or they, they move to an agency. You know, if it's foreign policy, you go to the State Department, or the Defense Department, where the hours are a little easier. You know, at the White House, what's different is every problem comes to your doorstep. You know, yep. every crisis, you're going to be drinking from the fire hose like you don't get a break the unsolvable know? stuff the yeah that stuff that comes to you is the stuff that has no easy solution sure and and, and has bad options and, and i even you know write in the book about like three years in a row my vacation the one vacation of the year was canceled because if there's a chemical weapons attack in syria or if mm. isis beheads an american like you drop whatever you're doing and you go back to work and and so you know i, I there are very few people that were in the white house from day one until literally I left with the Obamas on their last flight on Air Force One on Trump's inauguration day. But what I liked about that is, you know, I saw the beginning, middle, and end of this whole story. And I saw what it's like to come in and to exit. And that, that's a pretty rare opportunity in American politics. Younger Ben Rhodes. If Ben Rhodes of today was talking to younger Ben Rhodes now, elections won in 08, Hyde Park speech, you're getting ready to get into the administration official, uh, officially. What would, what, would, what would now Ben Rhodes say to younger Ben Rhodes to maybe help him better prepare or be less surprised of certain things? What, what, would he, what lessons would he want to tell the younger version? Yeah. It's a really great question. I think the couple of things that come to my mind are, are, first of all, you know, we came in. I mean, people forget, given how partisan things are now. Obama came in not just with a huge landslide victory, but with this kind of unifying message. We're going to come together to solve these problems. You know, we've got the financial crisis and we've got the Iraq war. And I definitely underestimated the kind of partisan buzzsaw that we were going to run right into. And I, would, um, I would guess Obama probably did too. He did. He did. I think, I think it's fair to say he did. You know, I, I, I think we likely would have done things differently. Like, and part of that, frankly, is also time. Like we had a majority in Congress for two years and then we lost the house and never got it back. So really we only had total freedom of action for two years, you know, and I often think, what would I have done differently? If I had known that we really were only going to have these majorities for two years. I, right? I would guess immigration would have been at the top. Immigration, yeah. Guantanamo, like, uh, you know, legislating some of the things we wanted to end up doing on climate change. 
it would have been hard to get all that done along with everything else we were doing at the time. But I do think that I would have had a greater appreciation for the limitations of that bipartisan message we had, the limitation of time that we had to really make big change. One of the things that's interesting to me is that you're at your maximum political capital on day one, and every day you're in office, you're, you're losing political capital. You know? <laughs> and then you replenish it a little bit if you're reelected, but it never goes back to what it was. So I think that urgency, I would have had more urgency. You know? And then I also think you just learn things about how the government operates that if I'd known, you know, I was much more effective in the second term than the first because I knew how to move the pieces around and I knew how sure. to work the bureaucracy and I knew, you know, how to get something done with Congress. And, and, and that kind of intangible knowledge, you know, that's what I didn't have as a 31-year-old. What I had, though, is that I wasn't jaded. You know, it's almost a good thing to have some people there who are still riding a wave of idealism. You need to kind of revitalize things because you know, some of the people I've known who are great people, but who've been around Washington for years, they internalize all of the compromises you have to make. You know? Sure. And, and so while I would have wanted to give that advice to younger Ben Rhodes, I think it's probably good that I also, I was that person who came in thinking about everything that was possible and not just the limitations we were going to face. Sure. No, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, as someone who, I guess I would describe myself as somewhat of a political junkie, it's just interesting to think about how different the previous administration is to the current one. And just thinking about, you know, if you guys had a crystal ball and you knew that, like you, you guys knew for certain that Trump was going to win the presidency and then the, the, the two contrasts of, I guess, policy and just worldview would be so different. Do you ever think about that, that if, if you had a crystal ball and you knew, you know, because the assumption I think was from the majority of the world and especially the country was that Hillary was going to win the election. But do you think the administration as a whole would have maybe done things a little bit differently if they knew I mean, I think we would have uh, done things differently. You know, it's you, you assume a degree of continuity with what you're doing. You know, so you're making your policy to Russia. You're making, obviously, agreements like the Iran nuclear agreement or the normalization of relations with Cuba that I negotiated. Like, you, you think a Republican might get elected and might adjust course? Sure. But I don't think anyone assumes that someone's going to come in and just tear everything up and try to be a bull in a china shop with everything the predecessor did. And kind of upend, you know, basic functions of how the U.S. government operates internationally. So they're very practical things. Like, so a lot of what we did on policy I was very involved with Cuba was through executive action. So we we changed a bunch of rules to allow Americans to travel to Cuba, allow American businesses to operate in Cuba. Had I known, okay, we're gonna have Trump and he's just gonna try to tear all this up, I think. I would have worked much more aggressively to try to legislate some of that. Sure, you know, sure. Congress might not have lifted the embargo on Cuba, but I think we probably, if we really tried, could have lifted the travel ban on Cuba, could, could have legislated some of our changes. So again, some of this is tough with a Republican can control the House and Senate the last few years, but you can do things. You can still do things on big budget bills and sure. things like that. And then frankly, some of the more routine aspects of American foreign policy that Trump is taking aim at you might have legislated, you know, so like we set up a, a, a unit at the State Department to coordinate the entire U.S. government to combat Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it had a budget of like 40, 50 million dollars. This was around what year? 2016. When okay. We saw Russian efforts really picking up. Trump zeroed that out. <laughs> you know, um, we could have legislated that. I mean, we could have, you know, Republicans supported it. We could have kind of institutionalized some of the things that government does. And you see that in, in other aspects. There, there, there are areas where Trump doesn't agree with what we did, but it's in legislation, it's, and, and he can't really upend it. 
it's the things that are not legislated, like the Iran nuclear deal, for instance, that are easier for him to just kind of tear up, right? Sure. Um, again, not that we could have done all this with Republican uh, control of Congress, but there's a bunch of things that if I went back, we probably could have legislated to protect it. Again, whether it's a signature Obama thing like the Cuba opening or whether that's a U.S. interest like combating Russian disinformation and aggression. Sure. And you and you were there for it all because, you know, when I told a lot of my friends that share my passion for keeping up with the political landscape and I told them that I was going to be interviewing you, I think a lot of people, they, they recognize your name along with what you did with Cuba. But before that, you were heavily involved with, with what happened in Egypt, right? With yeah. Mubarak and the Arab Spring. And I think you you wrote the speech. Cairo speech. You wrote yeah. the Cairo yeah. speech, which was a really important time, obviously, as well. I, I was curious from your perspective during your time over those eight years, is is there any singular achievement that stands out? Is there something that you're the most proud of that you and you know maybe some of your colleagues had worked on? Well, for me, it was Cuba. You know, Because with Cuba, I led the negotiations. And so it was interesting for me to be involved in a policy from every vantage point, you know, in the diplomacy, in the policy development, obviously in the communication, the speeches Obama gave about it, the trip we took to Havana, that whole policy I felt some degree of ownership over. And the reason I take pride in it is it's not the biggest world changing thing we did, but I think it did represent something about Obama to say, we can get beyond the past here. And this conflict with the island nation 90 miles off of Florida, it's time to put this in the past. Sure. And, and even though Trump has undone some of it, I think the psychological barrier that we broke, you know, that continues. And I remember the Vatican was the third party in those negotiations to, to kind of be the, the guarantor, if you will, of what we were agreeing to. And we went to the Vatican and, you know, the Vatican, funny, the cybersecurity event doesn't do any business over email, <laughs> which actually <laughs> in retrospect is a pretty smart policy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they didn't realize how much progress we made. And so they literally had to check with each of us. You're, you're really going to open embassies and the Cubans are going to free political prisoners and provide access to the Internet. And America is going to open up opportunities. for people. You, you were negotiating with Castro's son, too, with right? Castro's son. You know, well, what was that like? It was fascinating because, you know, the first time I sat down with him, we exchanged pleasantries. And then was this he, was this in Cuba is in Canada. So oh, in did, Canada. Uh, that's right. We had to do kind of cloak and dagger secret negotiations in Canada. We went to Trinidad. We went to Mexico. The first session, I got a kind of five-hour blast of, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion and <laughs> efforts to assassinate Fidel. They've never sat across the table from a senior White House guy like me. And so they got it all off their chest. And what was really fascinating is over the course of nine, 10, 11, 12 meetings that ran, you know, two days, trying to build a rapport with someone that I disagree with. Sure. Um, but I have to find a way in to make some agreements. And, and, and that process culminated at the Vatican where we read aloud all these agreements we made. And I remember the cardinal who was there, who was like the number two guy at the Vatican, he teared up and he's like, look, beyond Cuba and the US, this is just going to give people hope that adversaries can work things out through dialogue. And, and so that's why I take pride in it, is it, it's both what we're trying to do on Cuba specifically, but also showing that through diplomacy, you could get over a hurdle like that. You know, sure. I think that that mattered to people in kind of an intangible way. Before we run out of time, I want to get your opinion on some current affairs stuff. But again, this is um, this is a lot of fun for me asking you all these questions. I, I remember watching an interview with Obama toward the end of his presidency, and he, someone had asked him what he thought his biggest foreign policy or his biggest presidential mistake was. And he talked about Libya yeah. and the removal of Gaddafi. And he gave a number of reasons why he thought that was a mistake. Was there anything, because you were involved a little... Yeah, I was involved in that. Yeah, because you were involved in that yeah. as well. But... What was the original motivation in Libya to remove Gaddafi? Was it because 
he was a bad guy and it was that same idea that the U.S. could be assistance to kind of rebuild a democracy there? Or what was it that was the motivation to go that route? Well, and, and I should say, because you mentioned Egypt, I mean, clearly the, the most difficult thing in the Obama presidency, where we had the, the least amount of success and some acute failures, was in the whole Arab Spring context. Sure. Egypt to Libya to Syria. You know, Libya, what was interesting is it started because Gaddafi, you know, pro, there were protests against Gaddafi. He lost control, essentially, of about half the country. And then he set about cracking down. And he was literally advancing on these cities that he'd lost control of to snuff out dissent and probably kill a lot of people. Ironically, the biggest city was Benghazi, which became something else, but was actually a city on a map. I think the initial impulse was, we have to stop him from killing these people. I mean, it was as simple as that. It was like, the US military has a capability to stop this advancing Gaddafi army in its tracks and save these people's lives. And that was what motivated the decision to intervene. Sure. Now, what then happened is once you're in, you're in. And it's like, well, then we have to push Gaddafi back. And then it's, well, as long as Gaddafi's in power, these people are threatened. So then we stuck through it until Gaddafi was out of power. Then there's a huge vacuum in the country. And then it kind of devolves into this kind of chaotic, violent state that it's in. And so one of the lessons is, you know, you can start something like that with one intention and the, the objectives seem to grow as it goes along. And my main lesson from eight years is, particularly in the Middle East, which is so foreign to us and has so many different, you know, divides, our capacity to kind of engineer outcomes is very limited. Sure. We had 150,000 troops in Iraq and we couldn't fix that place. We had very few troops, none on the ground in Libya, and it ended up chaotically. We didn't really go into Syria and look at what, you know, so all these things have in common is we have to have some humility about our ability to sit here in the United States and kind of direct events internally in in countries like Libya or Iraq or Syria. And so I think that humility is something that I internalized increasingly over the course of those eight years. It's it's interesting, obviously, to play Monday morning quarterback, but... Well, you know, the funny thing about it, it's not funny, but the the interesting thing about it is, you know, all the criticism comes our way about intervening in Libya for, you know, humanitarian purpose. And I understand the criticism. The criticism in Syria comes for us not intervening. Sure. And it I do think you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, mm. these places are going to be violent and there are going to be civil wars anyway, you know? And the question is, what is the U.S. role in those conflicts? And what you learn is in government, sometimes there, there really aren't, there's just bad and worse solutions and bad and worse options. And I think Obama, particularly as time went on, was more biased towards restraint. And we can make things worse by intervening, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we might not necessarily be able to fix this problem. I think it's a very American thing to look at a country and think we, we can fix this, you know, and the reality is sometimes you can't. How much does so-called political opinion or the pulse of the country come into consideration before you make a decision? I know there were people from the OA campaign that yeah. were that dealt with polling and yeah. as the momentum of the administration two, three years gets going before you guys make big decisions like the risk reward of getting bin Laden or things about Syria and crossing the red line, how, how much of it is you're taking into consideration what you think the country thinks at the time? So a lot of foreign policy is kind of apolitical. You know, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot that the United States does every day on counterterrorism or promoting American economic opportunities or managing alliances that, you know, you, you're doing irrespective of politics. There are certain decisions where you have to take into account the opinion of the country. Syria is a good example. You know, after the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and 
you know, 15 years of war and trillions of dollars, the American people were not going to support another major war in the Middle East. They just weren't, you know. And I don't think that's irresponsible to factor that in because what Obama was thinking is, if I start this, can I see it through? You know, if I go to war in Syria and end up, as we did in Libya, we, we could have gone into Syria to try to protect some of the people there. It, the slippery slope is very quick to then you have to remove Assad because he's threatening the people there. Yeah. And I think what Obama thought is like, look, in a world in which there was no war in Iraq, no war in Afghanistan, maybe that's something I could do. I could sustain a multi-year military intervention. But I have to be mindful that public opinion is not there. And so what he did is he put the question to Congress, which is in our constitutional democracy, where you're supposed to put it, right? Will the people's representatives vote to authorize use of military force in Syria? And they, they, they didn't. They refused to do it. And you can't ignore that in a democracy. So I, again, I think most foreign policy is apolitical. But on really big questions, like do we go to war or not, mm-hmm. you, you have to have the temperature of the country in mind. Sure. No, but no, we did some things that were politically tough, you know, like Iran, bad actor, like doing a nuclear agreement with them was going to be politically risky. But Obama thought it was worth it because it was better to have a nuclear deal than to go to war with Iran or have Iran get a nuclear weapon. Right. So sometimes you also have to cut against the political gain grain. Even then you have to know, you know, eyes open how difficult it's going to be. Two things I wanted to, to finish up on just because like I said before, I could talk to you about your eight years for the next few hours because it's, it's it's very impressive. Well, a lot of the things that you guys got accomplished. So we're obviously heading into the 2020 election. We're in the disinformation age. I mean, I don't know. I know I follow you on Twitter and I see a lot of what you what you're writing. But as I was saying to you before, when before we started the interview, whether it's with family or friends or in group chats, every, everywhere you go, it's one side or the other. Yeah. And you know, a lot of what I feel that. I talk to anybody about that doesn't necessarily agree generally of the way I think. You know, I think a lot of what they're bringing to the table is just not not true. It's just not accurate. That's obviously going to continue. And as we head into 2020, what advice would you give to whoever the candidate or the nominee is going to be for the the Democratic Party? What give what do you think gives the Democratic Party the best shot? I mean, you know, I take from the fact that guys like Joe Biden are polling well and, you know, is because because a lot of people that I talk to, their opinion is, well, we got to we got to nominate a guy like Joe Biden because that gives yeah. us our best shot or whoever the candidate is, I guess, to take to take on Trump. I guess what what would be the advice you'd give them just so we don't leave anything? We don't leave any stone unturned. We do the you know, the party does the best that they can. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you mentioned the age of disinformation. That's actually something I would have told 2009 Ben Rhodes, you know, Twitter barely existed then. Right? Yeah. I had no idea what was coming. But I, I think, number one, you have to have a core rationale for why you want to be president that you're thinking about and talking about every single day. You know, And it has to connect to who you are, what your biography is, what you want to do as president, what plans you have. And what's so important is in an age of Trump where he's just throwing up distractions every single day and disinformation and attacks, if you get knocked off your core story, then Trump is totally controlling the terms of the debate, right? So I think it takes a lot of discipline for the Democrat to say, here's my message, here's what I'm trying to do. I'll respond to Trump when I need to, when I really need to, but I'm not going to chase him down every rabbit hole. I'm going to talk about what I want to do for people as president. And, and that ties into the argument you make against Trump, because I remember late in 2016, I was traveling with Obama. He's campaigning for Hillary. And I remember watching Hillary's kind of closing advertisement. And it was like a long ad, a minute or two, negative ad about Trump. He 
insulted disabled people. He insulted a Gold Star family. He attacked John McCain. He assaulted women. He uses bad language. By the end of the ad, I actually didn't even know what I was supposed to be angry about, you know? <laughs> and none of it really connected to, like, people's bread and butter, you know? It was all temperament. It was all the stuff that was dominating the media cycle. And I think that was a mistake. You know, you, you need a core argument. If your argument is that, for instance, you know, I'm a Democrat. I want to help people access opportunity. I want to lower the cost of things like healthcare and college tuition. And the kind of corruption and special interests in our system need to be pushed aside so that I can get that done. Like, that's an agenda that appeals to people. That's what Obama ran on. Your argument against Trump has to reflect that. Trump told you he would look out for you, but he just looked out for himself. You know, Trump is a part of the corruption, right? And, 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 and you may not attack every element of Trump's behavior, but What's the core message of what you're for and what you're against, you know? And, and how do you communicate that in everything from your speeches to your tweets so that people understand by the time they walk into the voting booth exactly what they're voting for or what they're voting against, you know? And I think in 2016, we didn't have that. Sure. No, that, ma- that makes a lot, a lot of sense in terms of kind of the focus points of yeah. whoever, whoever the candidate is going to be. I wanted to close just with um, one last question. You know, I was watching the um, the ambassador for Ukraine's testimony yeah. last week, yeah. and amongst everything that she said, you know, one of the things that I, that was the most disheartening for me was not necessarily, you know, it was not it didn't make me feel good to see that she was being attacked yeah. unreasonably, and she seemed like a great civil servant, very well respected. But one of the things that kind of got me was what she was talking about in terms of kind of the infrastructure of our democracy, what's going on inside the State Department, yeah. great people being replaced by more people focused on ideologue and yeah. ideology and loyalty. There will be a post-Trump era in, yeah. in the country. And that was the thing, two things. One is, is that depending on who the next president is or whenever that day comes when Trump is not the president, how do we get back to some sense of normalcy? Can yeah. we get there? And the last thing in regards to normalcy is, a lot of people I talk to that are, you know, very far to the left think that democracy has been totally destroyed in the United States. I don't, I don't think that. I think in some respect, the norms have held yeah. and our institutions have held pretty well. So I guess just to sum it up, the, the two questions I would have is, is that post-Trump America, how do we make our, our government yeah. just more solid, yeah. regardless of what party is in control? And do you think that the institution of government has held fairly well considering all the bruises it's taken? Yeah, so I think you can't overstate the challenge of what you're talking about in terms of the professionalism and capacity of the government. You know, I think people don't realize that when there's a change in administration, there's only a change in a kind of few thousand positions. And the millions of people who work for the federal government yeah. stay the same. And those people are a tremendous resource because you don't come in knowing everything. Like, So when I did Cuban negotiations, my partner in those negotiations was a foreign service officer who'd served in Cuba and knew more about Cuba than I will ever know. And so it took a mix of my political perspective and his deep, you know, saturation in the policy to get it done. And there were experts like that on every issue, and they look exactly like the people who are testifying, right? Yeah. And what's happening is there's been this exodus from the State Department. It's a lot of it intentional. A lot of people have been fired or forced into early retirement. And then some people have just left because they can't go along with this. And these people each have like decades of experience added up hundreds, thousands of years of experience have walked out the door. I would think probably a lot of them have never voted. Yeah. Oh, and I have no idea their politics. Yeah. I mean, I really, and, and frankly, I'm not just saying that either because like, if you ask me, like, these are the most moderate people, yeah. you know, like, I don't know if they vote Democrat or Republican, they are very much in the middle. Usually they're not ideologues. The State Department 
and, and government service doesn't attract yeah. kind of activist types, you know, because um, you have to do this for, for decades under different parties. And that's experience that we're losing. We're not getting back. I just know the foreign policy side of it. I, I don't know what's happening at the EPA or in cybersecurity or in, in you know, centers for disease control. Like, this is a problem, you know. And so whoever the next president is, if it's a Democrat, I think a huge project is going to be just attracting talent back into government and getting things running again and maybe bringing some people back who'd left, which is usually not the practice, so that we can just kind of get back up to steady state, you know. I think Americans don't appreciate the resources that they have. Because if all these people leave, there's not anybody else who knows, just take diplomacy, who knows Ukraine, who knows Russia. Like, you can't pull that off a shelf. Like, you have to develop that over decades. So that's a huge uh, issue. And to your second question, it's somewhat related in the sense that I think it's mixed. I think the institutions have, have largely held. I mean, the media isn't entirely intimidated by Trump. And Congress, now that you know there's a Democratic control of the House, is a, a something of a check, although Trump is challenging that by yeah. not going along with subpoenas and things like that. The courts, you know, so the, there is a sense of, of institutions holding. However, what has been concerning to me is that Trump has really taken direct aim at this. He has basically said, like, I don't think that Justice Department should be independent. You know, it should do whatever I want, right? I don't think the media should be able to report negatively on me. I, he uses very undemocratic language. And what's interesting, you mentioned my Twitter account earlier, like, I actually, as we talked about in this conversation, like, I would not have pegged myself to become a very partisan figure. Sure. Uh, you know, like I said, I worked for Giuliani. Like the, the message of our 08 campaign was very unifying. I'm doing that because I'm that worried about yep. the kind of undemocratic trend. I think it's held, but I worry if Trump is reelected, it will kind of be a validation from the electorate of that undemocratic brand of governance. Like people have seen for four years what he wants. He wants to not cooperate with Congress. He wants to kind of get rid of any checks on his ability to do things as an executive. So I think we're fine for now, but I, I think eight years of this after a validation of this from the electorate, and we could be having a very different conversation in a few years. Yeah, no. We'll still be a democracy, you know, but the norms that our democracy depends upon, I mean, that's one thing that's so interesting is that a lot of those are self-executing. Like, it's interesting to me that it wasn't technically illegal to seek foreign assistance for an election. The reason is because nobody ever imagined anybody would do it, you know? <laughs> and so that's kind of the challenge Trump provides, yeah. is, it, is it the system that our founders designed didn't anticipate someone like Trump. Or if they did, they thought that they could be checked by Congress, but Trump is pushing against that, right? So, so I think this, these kind of core questions of what kind of political system we want to have are in play in this, this next election. And, and, and just to wrap up, one of the things that you see that, that a lot of news networks adver that they show in terms of video is they show establishment Republicans that have been in Congress for 20 or 30 years and their opinion on the same topic, but insert Donald Trump's name is totally different. Yeah. And some of the, some of the topics are, they're exactly the same, but their view is just different. And there's some type of matrix maze that they put together to try to try to get around it. Ben, I just am curious, do you think it's just a ends justify the means like we're getting policy put through and this is, you know, we'll just take it and we'll put on a brave front and we won't fight with him. And, you know, at the end, when it's all over, we'll say, oh, we never really liked him. Like we just getting judges. And is it is it as simple as that? Or do they actually buy into it? It's 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 both in the sense that there are a lot of established Republicans who will tell you privately, you know, and I've even heard oh, I don't really like this, but you know, I'm for tax cuts and you know deregulation or what have you. And then there are people who, you know, a lot of the Republicans who were elected after 2010, you know, the Tea Party wave and after, sure, they really did come out of pretty, you know, aggressive partisan, you know, Fox News. You can't under 
value the importance of that media ecosystem on the right, you know, Fox and Breitbart and online yeah. stuff. I find it to be the most distressing thing that's happened though, because you're just take Russia, right? The Republican Party, the entire orientation of their foreign policy, my whole life was Czech Russian aggression. Russia is an adversary. And some of these same people are saying that they have no problem with, with yeah. what Russia did in our election or with leveraging military aid on Ukraine. So what, right, is, the, and, is what they say. Yeah, and it's like, but guys, like, substantively, you believe the opposite thing. And, and so I think that is worrying. And, and look, I think once you start making that compromise, what, part of what's showing is it's hard to stop, right? I mean, once you start saying anything Trump can do is okay, then everything is in play. I hope for the sake of the country, we can kind of get back to just arguing about like the size of government. You know, yeah, yeah. it seems like such a like a you know the debates that we used to have about regulation and taxation seem so mild compared to this. But that will take the Republican Party, you know, moving off of this direction that they've pursued under Trump, where everything is blood sport. Sure. You know? Well, I could go on for another hour, but Ben's probably hungry and he wants to get ready for his keynote, which I know everybody waiting in cocktails right now wants to hear. Ben, thank you so much. One of the highlights since I've started the company to get a chance to interview you. Congratulations on all your successes, and we wish you nothing but the best. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Great conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure to listen and subscribe to our podcast exclusively on iTunes and SoundCloud to get the inside scoop from top execs in the world of digital transformation. 